Peace be with you, church. Amen. We're continuing in our series through the book of Galatians this morning. If you haven't been with us in the series, we're just walking line by line as we go through the book of Galatians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to several churches uh, in the Galatia area. And we're continuing this series uh, with chapter 5, verses 2 through 6 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find that on the Blue Pew Bible uh, on page 974 or 975 under your chair or the chair in front of you. And as you turn there, I want to get your mind thinking about advantages, the various advantages that we have in life. Particularly, let's think of the example with sports. In, in various sports, there's, there's advantages that teams can have that will help them provide an easier way of success to win the game. You think of the field advantage in football. You think of in tennis having an advantage. You think of in golf being able to move your ball into a proper position to have a better advantage to hit the ball more cleanly. Uh, in the business arena, you find advantages to knowing the boss. And if you're looking for that promotion and you know the guy who's in charge of the promotion, you have sort of an advantage over someone else in the company who has no connections with that person whatsoever. And you, therefore, have a likelier opportunity for success. Well, in this case, uh, as we look in our text this morning, we'll find that we have an advantage in Christ. But this advantage is different from those advantages in that without the advantage in the world, you could still find a way to succeed. You could win the game without the court advantage. You could get the job without the advantage of knowing the guy. But in the Lord's kingdom, there is no other advantage other than knowing Jesus and believing and trusting in Christ alone. So we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 6. And if you could, would you follow along with me as I read these few verses for us? Galatians chapter 5 on page 974. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I believe the main point we ought to consider in these few verses this morning is this. Christ is our only advantage for past, present, and future righteousness by faith. Christ is our only advantage for past righteousness, present righteousness, and future righteousness, all by faith. And there are four advantages of, of knowing Christ that I want to share with you this morning. We're going to go through them one at a time. I'm not going to give you them all up front. But if you would, please start with me at verse number two. Again, Paul says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. To put verse 2 a different way, we could say like this. If you accept circumcision. Now, we're going to see in a few verses, next verse actually, that 
This actually refers broader to the entirety of the law because you can't just accept one part of the law without accepting all of it. So he says, if you accept circumcision, Christ is no advantage to you. If you accept Christ, circumcision is no advantage to you. Keeping the law is no advantage to you as a means of justification. Here Paul makes a dichotomy clear between law-keeping and Christ-trusting as a means to be justified before our God. They are diametrically opposed to one another. If one is true, the other is nullified. You cannot hold to both. You have to choose. And that one that you choose is quite important because your eternal justification is on the line. Whether or not you are right with God, your creator is on the line. So you need to pick one, and you need to pick the right one. Pick red or blue. But before you pick, Paul makes it clear here in verse 2, which of the two sides is the side with the advantage? The side you want to be on. So the side where you can have the hope for yesterday, the hope for today, the hope for the end, that side is Christ. Christ is our advantage, our only advantage, for past, present, and future righteousness by faith. So I think it would be helpful for us in our time today to frame our time around what Paul would say is the advantage of Christ. And I see four advantages of choosing Christ, faith in Christ, over choosing law-keeping for justification in this text. And I want to share those four with you this morning. And Lord willing, for those of us who, who know Christ we would grow in a deeper love and a deeper appreciation for our Lord, a deeper dependence on Him for His righteousness working in us. And for those of us who might not know Christ, Lord willing, you see just how much Jesus loves you and how much you really need Him. So the first advantage comes to us in verse 3. Verse 3 says this, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Advantage number one. Christ has fulfilled the whole law. Christ has fulfilled the whole law. Now, for each advantage this morning, I have a little summary statement to make the dichotomy in the text really clear for us so that you can see the weightiness of it if you don't have the advantage of Christ. First, without the advantage of Christ, we are obligated to keep the whole law. With the advantage of Christ, the law has been fulfilled for us. Here in verse 3, Paul makes the Galatian church aware. The word of God makes us aware of the problem of accepting circumcision, of accepting law-keeping to be right with God. Circumcision for the Judaizers was the front door, the necessary means to start that process of living a life pleasing to God. It was step number one, get circumcised. That is, begin the process of proselytization to their side. Conversion away from faith in Jesus alone to law-keeping on top of Christ as a means of justification. And here we learn the gravity of that decision is much greater than we think. It might seem harmless, as if it's a small matter, not a big deal, a happenstance, something you can just do to check off the box. But if you choose to even do this one thing, Paul says, the text says it really clearly, you are obligated to keep the whole law. And this is because you have submitted, even in that one thing, you've submitted yourself to working for righteousness rather than depending on the completed work of Christ on the cross by faith. 
Galatian church, Paul would say, you've chosen one of the laws. Now you're obligated to keep all of the laws. You can't just take one and leave the rest. When you take one, you've submitted yourself to the rest of it. You've submitted yourself to this yoke of slavery. Now you're bound to the entire yoke. You must keep the entire yoke perfectly in order to be counted righteous before God. Because we know, as as Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of God. Of heaven, And I would like to believe that he meant what he said. You must actually keep the law perfectly. Now, and he says you're obligated now. You're bound. You now have no choice but to keep every single one. Because if you don't keep every single one, you will never see God. The scripture says without holiness, no one shall see God. And that is because our God is holy. The scripture says... He's a consuming fire, Hebrews 12. Someone to be revered, someone to be feared, not someone to take lightly. And if we have any stain of sin in his presence, any law that we've not kept, any law that we've disobeyed at all, we will be condemned even for one. So the church, upon accepting circumcision, they accept the terms of that covenant, the old covenant, which says if you break this, you will receive its curses. You are bound now to keep all of it in order to live. James chapter 2 verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Without holiness, no one will see God. So see the utter hopelessness in law keeping to reach God because we can't keep the whole law. We're unable to do that. It says if you've even failed at one point at any of them, you're guilty of breaking them all. And the weight of judgment for all of those commands rests on your shoulders. If you aren't a Christian here this morning, we're thankful that you're here with us. We're thankful that Jesus loves you so much that he would bring you here with us to hear this message of his life, the message of his love for you, the message of his gospel that alone can change your life. But most of the time, if we're honest, at least I've recognized in my own life, you don't really recognize how good the good news is until you actually recognize how bad the bad news is. Have you tried to live by the letter lately? What rules do you follow in order to be right with God? Maybe that's another religion, other practices. Maybe you consider yourself a Christian and you you base your life on the Ten Commandments and keeping the Ten Commandments every single day. Maybe you create your own rules for yourself. It might not look like accepting circumcision like with these guys, but it is accepting a law Nevertheless, so what does that law look like to you? What laws do you find yourself bound by thinking that you have to do X, Y, Z in order for God to love you, in order to be right with God? It often keeps you anxious, doesn't it? Your mind is consumed with these X, Y, Zs and all the potential ways you could sin. And all those ways that you need to spend all your effort trying to avoid all those sins rather than your mind be consumed with peace that only comes from Christ. What seems to fill your mind is how sinful you are rather than how glorious our Lord is. What seems to fill your mind is how sinful you are, either either you are now or that you could potentially be somehow if you just get off the rails a little bit. If you don't just keep all your laws how you told yourself you should keep them, you can see how bad you might actually be. Your mind is so consumed with this. Maybe you really are good at keeping those rules. 
Well, let me ask you, how often are you at peace after you've kept all your rules? Do you ever recognize at the end of the day how often you find yourself drowning in anxiety? Never sure of the love that God has for you. Always trying to attain his love, but never really feeling like you've reached it. Or maybe you're, you're one who's really bad at keeping rules. Maybe, maybe you believe in your heart you have to keep the rules for God to love you, but you know you're not good enough to do it, and you never have, and you never will, you never can keep them. So then what do you do? You despair. You slip into depression. You slip into fear because you believe God will never love you because you didn't do what he said. After all, you don't keep his rules, right? So where do we see the advantage of Christ in this text? We see it in this. If a man accepts circumcision, he's obligated to keep the whole law perfectly. But if a man accepts Christ, Christ took our yoke on himself and he fulfilled the law in our place. Jesus did it. Jesus took on the law. Jesus lived a perfect life start to finish. This is why the life of Jesus matters, right? Not just the death or the resurrection or the ascension. Jesus in total matters to us. His whole life matters to us. His living matters to us because in his living, Jesus kept the whole law in our place. In his living, he was obligated to keep all of the law and he did it by faith in his God who loved him and he was obligated, made obligated, just like us, just like all of us are, yet he did it without sin. He did it without breaking any one command his entire life. From the moment he could discern between what was right and what was wrong, Jesus chose to do what was right and what was honoring to the Father. Think about this. Jesus never once had any other gods before the one true God. Jesus never once created or worshipped any idols or vain images in his place. Jesus never once took the Lord's name in vain, whether with his mouth or with his actions. Jesus never once forsook the Sabbath, but he kept it holy. Jesus never once dishonored his father or mother. He never murdered. He never committed adultery, neither in his heart or in his mind. He never stole anything, neither in his heart or in his mind. He never once bore false testimony against his neighbor, nor had a false thought against his neighbor. He never once coveted anything that belonged to his neighbor. He fully and finally loved God with all his mind, heart, and strength, and loved his neighbor as himself his entire life. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. And the glorious news of the gospel is that by faith in him, that fulfillment is accredited to us. The scriptures say, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That means he took our sin in his place and he gave us his righteousness as an exchange. What a glorious exchange for us. What does it mean for him to take on our sin and bear the punishment for our sin in our place? How good is our Lord Jesus to do that in our place out of a great love for us? And it's out of this great love for us that he laid his life down willingly. No one could take it from him. He laid it down for himself, but God raised him back up again on the third day. Jesus is our only advantage because from the, begin the very beginning of his life until his death, he kept the whole law of God as is required if one is to be justified by it. Jesus did it. And he offers us complete fulfillment of the whole law by faith in him. This is the first of all advantages of accepting Christ. 
He's fulfilled the law's requirements already. You don't have to be bound by the law any longer. Chapter 5, verse 1, you can be free, as he said in this verse, for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The real disadvantage of accepting law-keeping to be saved is this. You bear the weight of all the law. You have now to do all the work. Not Jesus doing it for you. You now have full responsibility. You are totally obligated to fulfill everything that the law requires. But with Christ comes peace from this anxious toil, saint. Peace from late night anxiety about how much you failed today. Peace from the day-to-day battle with sin. Peace before God and peace with men because the Prince of Peace knows you by name and he loves you. That's why he laid his life down for you. And he took it back up again. He did it for you. All you have to do now is trust him. Let the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus from ever thinking that earning salvation would be better than trusting in Jesus for it. Even if earning feels tangible and you can check off boxes and you can almost keep record of how righteous you are, even though you think that it's attainable and that it is good for you to see that it is not, it can never take away the reality that it is always better to trust in Jesus. It is the only advantage that we have. Verse number four, we find our second advantage of Christ. Verse four says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Advantage number two, Christ is the source of life and grace. Without the advantage of Christ, we are severed from life and grace. Without, with the advantage of Christ, we are recipients of life and grace. Look at verse number four. He says, you are severed from Christ. Now, if you're reading through Galatians, it's hard to miss the connection. But you see what Paul is doing here, right? He is using circumcision language, the language that these Judaizers have been preaching nonstop, the reason why he's writing after it all to remind them of the one true gospel. He's using their language to show the church who it is that you are really being cut off from. And that, that, that thought goes back to the Old Testament, and, and circumcision was the distinguishing mark for God's people, right? Since the time of Abraham, we, we discussed this when we talked about Abraham. But the idea, it was twofold. It serves as a sign of separation from the world and serves as a sign of what would happen to you if you did not keep God's commands. You would be severed from God's people. Now here, I don't think the shock value is in the fact that he uses the word severed. I think the shock value is, what that, is that what the, the Judaizers were arguing, distinguish you from the world as the people of God. Paul flipped that around and is saying that actually severs you from God. It actually separates you from your God. You've cut yourself off from the life himself, the grace giver, by trying to keep law to please him instead of throwing yourself onto him in full dependence by faith. You've cut yourself off from God. Jesus is our only hope for life. Jesus as our creator. 
before whom and through all whom all things exist, right? He is the source of life, but at the same time, bearing our sin, dying and rising from the dead, Jesus alone can give resurrection life. He is the life himself. So if we are severed from Christ, notice how dangerous that is. If we're severed from Christ, this means we're severed from life. We have no hope for life today and no hope for life for eternity. John 10, verse 10, Jesus himself says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But notice in the text, they aren't looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for life, for abundant life. What are they looking at? They're looking elsewhere. What does it say? You who would be justified by the law. I like how the the NASB puts it. It says, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. Because the reality is, no one can be justified by the law, right? The reality is, they're trying to be justified by the law. That doesn't mean that they'll attain it. But they've sought this direction. They think that this is the advantage. Let's keep the law. That's our advantage to be right with God and in right relationship with God. But that's not the case. And I wanted to give you that verse there. You who are seeking to be justified by the law to show you that this text is not saying you can be. And I want to be clear about that up front. You can't be justified by keeping the law. We've talked about this in in verses past. Paul is saying you're trying to be justified by the law, but that's not possible. Thinking back to chapter 3, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. No one is justified before God by the law because the righteous shall live by faith. This is what Paul says verbatim. It's an unattainable, impossible goal to be justified by the law. Yet it seems the Galatian churches are being tempted that way. And we should not assume that we are any better, church, that that we, 2,000 years, are actually far removed from this exact same problem. Let's humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, lest we fall into the same kinds of temptations as this church did, though it doesn't come in the form of being tempted towards keeping circumcision. Let's continuously remind ourselves of the glorious truth that the advantage of having Christ is having life, the life himself living within us by faith, giving life to our mortal bodies, even now, life that we truly can live out of because formerly when we did not know God, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, walking in our darkness, blinded to the light of Jesus. But Jesus, our life, appeared to save us and set us free from that slavery, not because of works done by us, but according to his mercy. Another way you can say that is because of his grace. This brings us to the last part of verse 4, a horrifying reality. A horrifying reality if you stop and think about it. He says, you who be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. This is the end result of accepting circumcision, accepting law-keeping in order to be justified before God. Is that what you want? To fall away from grace. This is not what the Galatian church wants. RBC, this is not what we want, I pray. How dreadful would it be to be severed from Christ, to have no hope for life because you don't know the life. Christ offers abundant life today and for the future, but you push it all away for the hope of just doing enough for God to accept you, just doing enough to make it to heaven, just doing enough in the day-to-day so that at the end of the day, all you can say to God is, God, I did it. I did it. And he can look at you and say, it was not good enough. Even our best works are like filthy rags in God's eyes because of how holy God is and how sinful our hearts are. 
That isn't to say we can't do good, but that is to say that we will never be good enough. We'll never be perfect. You have to be holy to be in the presence of God, which is what makes God's grace so glorious, so beautiful, is that he makes us holy. He makes us holy by faith. But how dreadful would it be to fall away from his grace? Feel the weight of this, church. This is a warning. Like every other warning Paul has given us in Galatians, we need to sit in the warning because the warning teaches us to trust Jesus. It doesn't lead us away from Jesus. Warnings push us closer to Jesus. So sit in the way of the warning, church. Pursue works righteousness, and you fall away from grace. Grace brings with it the fulfillment of the law. Grace brings with it new abundant life. Grace brings with it joy, peace, hope. But you would fall away from all of it if you make the choice of working rather than trusting. Working to be right with God rather than trusting Jesus to make you right with God. What would it mean to fall away from grace? One of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament, it it sums up the gospel of grace quite clearly, is Ephesians 2, verses 5 through 9. And I want to read that, and then I want us to see with our eyes from the Word of God all that we would fall away from if we try to work for our salvation rather than trust Jesus for it. This is Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Verse 4, actually, sorry. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Pause here. Here, if we accept law-keeping, we reject God's mercy, we reject God's love for us, we remain dead in our wrongdoings and sins, we are severed from Christ, our life, not alive with Him, but dead apart from Him, we remove effectively the hope of salvation. Verse 6, and raised us up with him. We have no hope for resurrection without Jesus. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Choose law, we have no hope for heaven. So that in the coming ages, or the ages to come, he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If we choose law, we forsake an eternity of boundless riches of God's grace. And God's kindness toward us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. To sum it all up in a word. If we fall away from grace. We have denied the greatest gift of God. That God could have ever offered us. His only son. And we have effectively. Pursued works. For what? So we could boast in these things. When we stand before God. Like we earned it from him. I'd rather receive the gift for eternity than take one ounce of credit for righteousness that I could never truly achieve. Glory to Christ who gave his life so that he could give us new life by grace as a gift. 
Glory to Christ who would save us by that grace through faith. Is that it? I've, I've had plenty of conversations with people that you say, you're saved by faith. It's like, is that it? There's got to be something else. It's because in the human heart, we want to work for it. In the human heart, we want to earn it. We want to deserve it. But that's not how God's kingdom works. None of us deserve it. None of us have earned it. It is a gift of his grace. It is given freely and you can accept it or you can reject it. But that's all that you can get. It's the only advantage that we have. If you want to be right with God, if you want to be right before God and dwell with him forever, you have to receive his gift by faith. And that happens when we repent and trust in Jesus. I love what Tom Schreiner says about this verse. He says, the law tries to find righteousness by doing and obeying. Grace in Christ bestow righteousness as a gift. If the Galatians accept circumcision, they abandon grace and Christ. And after thinking on that a little bit this week, the question that came to my mind was this. How do we hold fast to that grace so that we don't fall away from it? My encouragement to you this morning, church, is this. If law-keeping tries to find righteousness by doing and obeying, we live our new lives of righteousness by receiving and rejoicing. Receive God's free gift as free. It was given for free. Receive it for free. Saints, stop trying to work for that gift even after you've accepted it. We all know those kinds of people, right? When you give them a gift, in some way or another, they either deny the gift because it's a gift, and, or they really try really hard to pay you back for it in some kind of way. Just stop. Whether, whether they give you, somebody gives you a gift, just take the gift. It's for free. They don't want any money in return. They don't want you to work for it. They don't want you to flatter them for it. Just take the gift. It was given by grace from that person in a greater way. This gift of grace is life given to you for free. You just take it. You just take it. You receive that life from the Lord himself. A gift is given without any expectation of payment. And the reality is you couldn't pay for it anyway. So just receive it from the Lord. And then when you receive it, rejoice in it. Rejoice, praise God for it, and enjoy the salvation that you've received by grace. Enjoy that relationship that you have with Jesus. Enjoy the relationship that he has brought you and reconciled you with to the Father. Listen to Paul in Romans 5 too. He says, through him... We've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always. Paul is ready to rejoice over the salvation that he's received by faith as a gift. The more, church, you spend time rejoicing in Christ's finished work, and the life he's given you by his grace, the less likely you will be to work regularly for your salvation, the salvation that you already possess. The more you're thinking about Jesus and what he's done, the less likely you're going to be thinking about all the things that you should do to earn it. With Romans 5 on our minds, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, we come to verse 5 in our text where we find our third advantage of Christ. Verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Advantage number three, the Spirit secures our hope of righteousness. Without the advantage of Christ, we do not have the Spirit, and we await judgment. With the advantage of Christ, 
We have the Spirit, and we have hope for the final day. And we talked about this when we walked through Galatians chapter 3, 1 through 5. In verse 2, Paul asks a question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer is, we receive the Spirit by hearing with faith. To reiterate the point, when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus, in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the throne of God on our behalf, when we look to Jesus alone for life, Jesus gives us his spirit, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit. The scriptures use these names interchangeably. The spirit comes and takes residence inside the believer. He dwells within us by faith. And the scriptures teach us that the Spirit is our guarantee for salvation. Not just today, but in the end. 2 Corinthians 2.21, for example, says this, And God has also put his seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That is a guarantee for our inheritance. A guarantee for eternal life. A guarantee, uh, in the context of Galatians, as children of God, testifying to us that we are heirs of God our guarantee that we will all remain united to Jesus by faith. So what we see here in verse 5 is that the Spirit is actually our guarantee for future righteousness. Verse 3, in Christ we see past righteousness fulfilled. Verse 5, we see future righteousness promised. When Paul uses this kind of language, waiting for our hope, he doesn't just use it here when he does use it. He's speaking of the day that is coming, the final day when we will all stand before God in judgment. Listen to Jesus' words in John 5. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. Do not marvel at this. Here it is. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. That's resurrection language. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What's the dichotomy here in Galatians 5 in light of Jesus' words? Here it is. Those who by faith hear the voice of the Son will live and will be resurrected to life. Everyone else who made the choice to close their ears to the voice of the Son and live how they wanted to live because they loved the darkness and they loved walking in it and they hated the light, whether it be adherence to the law, some form of religion, some form of self-justification before God, their own laws, somebody else's laws, or some other form of self-righteousness, they have made themselves to be God, whether it be complete holiness in their eyes or godlessness and lawlessness living their lives for their own pleasures. If Christ is not our hope, then we have no hope for righteousness. None in the end. It's as if Paul is saying to the Galatians, Saying also to us, if you submit to the law now, law keeping as a means of justification before God, today you have no hope for righteousness on the final day when you stand before the Lord. 
your final verdict will be guilty by the very laws you thought could give you life. But if you submit to Jesus, if you submit to him and by faith receive the law fulfilled in him and the spirit of God as our guarantee lives in you, when you stand before God at the final judgment, your final verdict will be righteous. Not because you are righteous, but because Jesus is righteous and he has fulfilled the law in your place and he resides inside of you. He has been united to you by faith. That is not your own righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus. So that no one can boast. God will be all in all on that day and will receive all glory, all honor, all praise, and rightly so because he was willing, even even willing by his grace, our merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He was willing to save sinners like you and me who have never done anything to deserve it. We all willingly rejected our God and he sought us out And he manifested his love for us in sending his son into our world in our darkness to dwell among us as a light so that he might die in our place so that we could have life today and we could have life on the last day. Later in in John chapter 6 verse 63, Jesus makes it clear that it's the spirit who gives life, not the flesh. So what must we do then? If the Spirit secures our hope for righteousness on the last day, His sealing us and keeping us, His testifying to the Father that we're children of God, requires us now to hold even tighter to our trust in Jesus. Trust in Him. Eyes on Christ. Not just today, but every single day until the end. The author of Hebrews exhorts us like this in Hebrews 10. He says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. That's the grounds of not wavering. It's not our strength that keeps us from wavering. It's that he who promised is faithful that keeps us from not wavering. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Again, another warning passage. Let this warning passage hit your heart and sit for a moment. Not to cause fear and trepidation for potential sin in your life and a judgment to come. Let it fill you, this warning, fill you with a greater hope, a greater reliance on the power of Christ working in us by the Spirit to bring us to the end because He who promised is faithful. I've heard something like this said once, and I'll paraphrase it this way. It's not the strength of your faith that provides your security for the last day, but the object of your faith that provides security. It's Jesus that provides security, not how strong your faith is, Christian. It's not how much you trust Jesus. It's just that you trust Jesus. It's just that it's Jesus who is your hope. It's Jesus whom you put your faith in. In Christ, we have this advantage. We have hope in the already today and the not yet of the end. We're both justified now, but ultimately then. We await 
All of us await the final verdict on the final day when we'll stand before judgment, both the righteous and the unrighteous before their God. But listen, church, what does Paul say here? We eagerly wait with hope, waiting eagerly for judgment. My mother has been a nurse my whole life. She's worked all over the hospital. She's been in the ER, triage, radiation, all of it. She's worked so hard in that hospital. One thing, though, if you ask her, she's been on a lot of bedsides as people are dying. And some of them have taken their last breath right next to her, holding her hand. But if you ask her, I bet she would say that overwhelmingly, of all the people that she's witnessed die, it's the Christian the believer in Christ who walks through the door of death with peace, unafraid, eagerly, because they know that it's just a doorway. What does it take to die eagerly? It takes a greater hope than this world could ever offer you, a hope that is more sure than anything in this world. More sure than the sun would rise tomorrow. More sure than the next breath you take would actually fill your lungs with the oxygen that you need so that you can exhale carbon dioxide and your body continues to function properly. More sure than your heart would continue to beat that you're not even subconsciously aware of it so that the next pump of blood would rush through your entire body so that you don't fall over dead right now. More sure than anything in this world is the hope that we have. We possess this hope as believers in Christ. Jesus, that our righteousness, his righteousness awaits us on the other side of death's door. It awaits us. And all we've got to do is look at Jesus and walk to him. Walk through the door to Jesus with our eyes on him. But don't jump ahead to the precipice of death. That's not where hope begins and ends. Waiting eagerly is something the church presently does. Waiting eagerly for the hope of righteousness starts today. This sounds like the posture of someone who knows the love that their Lord has for them. Do you know, saint, Christ's love for you? Do you really know it? Do you know how much he loves you? Do you rejoice in the love that Jesus has poured out on you by his grace? Do you enjoy the Father's affections for you as his child? He loves you so much. He loves you, Saint. Do you, you press that truth into your head? Are you confident that God really does love you as you are? Are you confident that God loves you enough not to leave you where you are, but to continue to sanctify you and look more into the image of his Son? If you are confident, you'll find yourself eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness because you know in that day you will stand with your Lord. He will stand beside you. He will stand before you. He will stand before the throne of grace and you will be received into eternity by the Father who loves you. And that's because you put all confidence in Jesus. You put no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in your works, just in Jesus and Jesus is the one who's going to see it through. Hope in Christ produces confidence. Hope in the flesh produces fear. And I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to have confidence. Because Jesus loves you. Church, are you eagerly waiting 
for the hope of righteousness. If not, maybe, maybe it's because your eyes are too focused on the letters that you're not keeping, on the laws that you are failing at. Maybe the laws, even if you have kept them, aren't satisfying you, and they won't. Look at Christ, who did it all and paid for every single one, every single way that you fail, every single law you can't keep. He's done every single one, and he died This is where his whole life matters. He not only lived perfectly, but he died so that he could give you his righteousness and all the ways you never made it. All the ways you failed, you're forgiven, and he's fulfilled it for you. But maybe it's not about the temptation to law-keeping. Maybe your eyes are just too focused on the here and now. Maybe, Maybe you're facing difficulties at home or in the workplace. Maybe you just feel an overall dissatisfaction with life. And I would encourage you, spend less time looking here and more time looking there. More time looking at Jesus where one day at the end of it all, he's going to be standing with you. He's going to be with you by your side. We're going to stand with him forever, worshiping at his feet forever, united to our Lord Jesus by faith in the presence of the Father for all of eternity. Look there. Look there for hope for today. Looking forward to the final verdict, righteous, remembering it's actually thanks to Jesus, not ourselves, will serve us in helping us to endure our daily battles with sin and temptation that will inevitably come to every single one of us because you know you can face them when you know one day he's going to make it all right. He's going to make it all right. There's not going to be any sin, suffering, any battles with sin because he's going to purge you and clean you. Your body's going to be glorified just as he is glorified. And until that day, he who promises is faithful. And if he said he would bring you to himself, he's going to do it. Look forward, saint. Meditate on what it will be like not to struggle anymore. And I think that will actually help you fight sin today. And this brings us to our last advantage of Christ in this text, verse 6. And we'll actually be spending a lot of time talking about this over the next several weeks, especially when we get to uh, the fruit of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit in in chapter 5. So I won't spend too much time breaking it down here. But verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Advantage number four. The Spirit fulfills the whole law in us. The Spirit fulfills the whole law in us. Without the advantage of Christ, we are weakened by the flesh and can't fulfill the law's requirements. With the advantage of Christ, we have the Spirit who works righteousness from within us. Another way you can say that is He actually fulfills the law's requirements through us. That's been a huge question, I assume, that the Judaizers would ask, the church would ask, if they don't have the law, how are they going to do what is right? How are they going to know what is right? It's because they have the Spirit. 
Talking so much about the, uh, the curse of the law, the inability for us to keep the law, the fruitless, uh, the fruitless nature of the law, its disadvantages for anyone who would submit themselves to the law, the slavery that our sin has us in when we're under the law. All, these talking, all this talking about the law might bring the church, might bring us to the point where we start to see the law in a very negative light. But the law of the Lord, what does the scripture say? Is perfect. The law was never the problem. Our sin was the problem. Our sin took the law and then produced in us all kinds of wickedness instead of righteousness. And one of those wicked things is the belief that we can actually keep the law by our own strength and use it as a means to attain righteousness before God rather than trusting in God by faith for the promise. Rather than what has always been the case since the beginning, that the righteous shall live by faith, not the letter. We don't trust that. We trusted our sin. And as we'll see here, and as we'll see in the remainder of Galatians, and as we see in Paul's other writings, honestly, the law must be upheld, even by Gentiles. But the advantage of Christ is that we've received the Spirit, and the Spirit from inside of us produces what the law requires on the outside, inside and outside. The Spirit produces obedience to the law when our flesh could not obey. The Spirit changes our hearts so that we desire to do what is pleasing to God. We desire to love God and love our neighbor because Jesus said those are the greatest two commandments, right? Love God, love our neighbor. And and all those, the law and the prophets stand, the Spirit actually produces in us righteous living, what is required to be right with God. And this was an issue for the church. Like I said, how will the Gentiles know what to do? How will they know how to live a life pleasing to God if we don't tell them to keep the law? If we don't give them the law and say, obey this, how will they know? Well, the answer, the Spirit who wrote the law lives inside of them now by faith, and by faith, the Spirit will produce obedience to that law. He knows what he wrote. He knows what's required, and he will produce what is required. What happens on the outside is not the focus. It actually provides no advantages to us whatsoever. Notice what he says here in verse 6. He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Circumcision has been the problem of focus up to this point, but here... Paul also includes everybody in the church who didn't get circumcised. They didn't listen to the Judaizers. And he makes it clear that that still doesn't put them in a better spot than the people who did get circumcised before God. Neither way in the flesh gives you any advantage. The only advantage that you have is Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 2. He says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. For no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Neither of those things counts for anything. Because circumcision is a matter of the heart, Paul says. And last time I checked, I don't know about you, maybe you have this ability, but last time I checked, I can't reach inside my body and cut sin and all of its desires and temptations from my heart with my own strength. I can't remove the stain that sin has affected my heart. I can't remove the power of my sin that sin tries to have go over me. I can't try to overcompensate for my sin by just trying to do more good than evil from my heart. I can't do it in my flesh. Works of the flesh do not count for anything. By implication, 
The only thing that counts for anything is what he says right here. Faith working through love. That is faith in Christ. And as we will see, the love that is produced is not from our hearts. It's a love produced by the spirit that lives in us. Only faith working through love, he says. Love, as we'll see in verse 22, love is a result of faith. It is a fruit of the spirit. What's Paul getting at, though, here? You could either try to live a life of law-keeping in the flesh, or by faith in Christ, that faith will manifest itself through love. Love of God and love of man being what fulfills all the law and all the prophets, what Jesus said himself. And it's the Spirit of God who works that from the inside of us. Thanks be to God. One commentator sums up Paul's argument this way. The law fails to provide righteousness now and offers no hope for the future. Life in the Spirit, however including living a life of genuine righteousness now, sorry, includes living a life of genuine righteousness now, that is faith expressing itself through the Spirit's fruit of love, and having absolute certainty about its final outcome. This is what the Spirit gives us today. We, like I said, we'll explore this over the next several weeks. What does it mean that faith works through love? What does it look like in the Christian life? How does the Spirit do that? But now, Suffice it to say that faith in Christ is enough for you. It's enough for you, church, to trust Jesus. Because Christ fulfilled the law for us. And by faith, he gives it to us for free. Faith in Christ is enough because Christ is life. And he gives us that life as a gift by grace that we receive. Faith in Christ is enough because the Spirit guarantees that the final verdict will be righteous, child, heir, son, daughter, when the law cannot guarantee any of that for you. Faith in Christ is enough because the Spirit of God, right now, fulfills the law in you as you grow in a deeper faith and dependence on Jesus, not on yourself and not on the law. As our love grows for Jesus, as we abide in Jesus, as we follow Jesus, the Spirit will produce the righteousness that we need. This is our hope, church. Christ alone. Hope for today, hope for living, and hope for eternal life on the last day. So my final encouragement to every single one of you is this. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray.